Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus, and along with my co-host, cookery writer, teacher and chef, Charlotte Pike, we're delighted to bring you series two of the show. As we roll through the autumn and winter of what has undoubtedly been the most extraordinary year of global upheaval, we'll be talking about all things to do with food. Here at the Pandemic Pantry podcast, our aim is to entertain and inform you, our lovely listeners. We'll be joined by lots of wonderful guests from the world of food, from chefs to food writers, who will share stories of how their life has changed and what their world of food now looks like, both at home and professionally. The podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus. Yes, there is a link. A delicious range of tasty treats from smoked hummus to our fabulous new chocolate spread dessert hummus, which tastes like brownie batter but has 70% less sugar than other chocolate spreads. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Ocado, Booth's, Planet Organic and Whole Foods Market, plus lots of lovely local independent farm shops and delis. Every week we'll be offering our lovely listeners the chance to win a case of delicious Moorish hummus and dips. If you'd like to enter the draw, please go to the competition posts on our social media pages and follow the instructions. So, the time has come. Pull up a chair and tuck in to another delicious episode of the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. As these strange times continue and we're now undergoing a second national lockdown, we'll talk about how this will be affecting those who work in the hospitality industry and what this means for us at home, as again, we can no longer go out to sit, eat and dine with our friends and family. We'll also talk about quick evening cooking at home and what we're cooking at the moment. And we have two fantastic guests coming up this week, the incredibly successful co-founder of Oaxaca Restaurants, Thomasina Myers, and the glorious food writer and TV chef, Cloda McKenna. And finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say up front that we know the audio quality of our content is not perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. So let's get on to the show. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? Hello, Jules. Lovely to see you. Well, I'm fine. Thank you very much. And family are too, which is always something I don't take for granted. But I must admit, I'm feeling a bit shell-shocked because we're recording this just as we're about to go into our second lockdown in England and it is really imminent now not long at all until it goes and I have to say I was pretty shell-shocked by it and I found out the news on Saturday actually had visitors had my partner's parents to come and see us and it was so lovely we're having lunch I had one of those nice days when I don't look at my phone and I don't know what's happening in the world and just have a nice time and enjoy some company and then yes it was like a real blow actually to hear the news so I was supposed to be going back to work this week I had cookery classes booked I was supposed to be really busy back to my cooking teaching in Birmingham I was doing three times a week before all of this happened and I was scheduled to go back there for the first time since March and I was supposed to go and teach some cookery classes in Worcestershire and that all got pulled which is so disappointing you know having looked forward to going back to work but you know it's just I think the way things are going to be and we are 
going to have to expect short notice cancellations really with a lot of things still and you know throughout the winter and you know from a practical point of view I'm due to go and do some food shopping later on today I'm slightly concerned about what I'm going to find when I do because I haven't been for a week actually I was doing some filming so I had loads of food in after I finished my filming so um, yeah it feels like a really strange time again how are things with you? It does feel strange and it and it is. And interestingly, I did the food shop on Monday and mm. went to the toilet roll section and there was just nothing. And you think, you know, some things I think people have learned how lockdown is and goes and and what we need to do to run our lives when this sort of situation takes over. But also it feels like some lessons haven't been learned. That's somewhat frustrating. And certainly from my point of view as, you know, a a supplier in the supply chain, it's always a surprise when shopper behaviour changes to such an extent that uh, even having been through this once already, there's still going to be an awful lot of uncertainty. And I think we can only urge caution and sensible approach to your purchases because the only thing that causes a problem in a supply chain is if it's put under unnecessary strain and demand and you know I'm sure the retailers are more prepared this time but really there is no need to panic by anything because there will always be enough we just need to buy sensibly and then it will be fine. In terms of of life at home for me personally as somebody who works from home anyway and always has and has children at school the fact that the schools aren't off means this lockdown is an easier pill to swallow because we we can just carry on working as we did anyway. What's clear though is that that is not the case for the the hospitality industry who sadly if you can't have customers in your restaurant then you have to close albeit that that some will open for takeaway not all businesses find that a financially sustainable model so I know our little restaurant here the River Shack They just can't operate on a takeaway only basis. It's not financially viable for them. And I think that's thrown out as a lifeline by the government as a, well, you know, don't worry, you can still sell takeaways, but it's not the same. And it's not the same for us as diners. But, you know, obviously there's the whole bigger picture of people being very, very ill and sadly dying. And, you know, we're all very aware of why these things are happening. I think it will all just come out in the academic analysis over the next few decades when people look back at at what we did and and maybe what we should have done. So we'll see. We will. But I think it's a very appropriate moment to introduce our first guest who is very much involved in the hospitality industry. So Charlotte, over to you. Thomasina Myers is a cook, food writer and is co-founder of the restaurant chain Oaxaca. Thomasina's career in food is broad and diverse. She has set up and run a, a restaurant in Mexico, made cheese and run market stores in Ireland, and of course, won MasterChef in 2005. She's the author of seven cookery books and writes a weekly recipe page that appears in The Guardian, which is always a collection of creative, accessible, and achievable seasonal recipes for home cooks. Tommy co-founded the Mexican restaurant group Oaxaca in 2006, which aims to serve street food that won't cost the earth. They've won accolades, including several design awards and the Sustainable Restaurant Awards three times. They also became the first UK carbon neutral restaurant. 
Thomasina is a champion of several campaigns to improve our food systems, and that includes her role as trustee of Chefs in Schools, which is a charitable organisation that places chefs in school kitchens to improve school meals and to provide food education for pupils. In 2019, she received an OBE for her services to the food industry. Wow, what a career. Thomasina Myers, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for making time to speak to us. It's great to have you with us. And, you know, particularly in this crazy week. So we're speaking just before England is about to go into lockdown for the second time. And how's this week looking for you? Well, I've got to say yesterday, it was Monday, I'd taken four days off for half term, where I slept quite a lot and also caught up on Queen's Gambit, which was phenomenal. (laughs) And then I got back to my desk on Monday to face the realities of lockdown and found it quite hard to shake this kind of black kind of cloud that was hanging over my head. But I went for a swim and I went for a walk and I took the girls swimming And then I opened my computer actually and saw record sales of our takeaway at Oaxaca and really full restaurants. And it was immensely cheering to feel that people are flooding through the gates, flooding through the doors in the last two days that they can have tacos in our restaurants ahead of the lockdown, which I do feel really sad about because I, you know, our swimming teacher has got her business. She's a single owner, proprietor, and she was shut for six months over lockdown And she's an amazing 55-year-old. And I feel deeply saddened for all the people who are really struggling, particularly in lockdowns. So I think it's a challenging time for everyone. And I think the only way we can carry on, though, is just putting one foot in front of the other, supporting each other as much as possible, showing kindness and compassion. And hopefully at some stage, the government will take on um, a restaurant czar as well to try and help consult on our industry, which employs... 4.6 4.6 million people, the tenth of the workforce, in fact. Yeah. So I feel very passionately about that too. Yeah, it, it has been, you know, a tremendously difficult time. But encouraging to hear that your orders have been so positive this week. Are you able to carry on offering a takeaway service at Oaxaca when we go into lockdown in England? Or is that something that will change for you? No, we are. We are going to open. We have one restaurant we still hadn't had time to open yet. So that is going to stay shut. But essentially, we will be doing takeaway from all our restaurants. And I think that is the most encouraging thing for us is that we can keep some of our staff engaged because I think it's so dispiriting for them to be stop, start, stop, start. It's immensely challenging for them. And I think just being able to come in and open the doors because our restaurant spaces are so safe, you know, that we mm. are, we've worked so hard, not over lockdown, but we, you know, we are fundamentally safe spaces because of the very nature of our business. So I think it's wonderful for them to be able to come in and see each other, because as we know, it's incredibly important for human spirit to see mm. one another. We are social creatures. And I think keeping people in kind of silos and small bubbles is really damaging for people. Yeah, I think so. And I think one thing that has always come across to me whenever I've been to Oaxaca, and I think I've managed to tick off almost all of your branches. And, uh, you know, they, they all have such a wonderful spirit, the team there. It just seems so cohesive and vibrant. And you clearly invest a lot and 
carefully choose the teams you have in each location and it must be you know you want to be maintaining that that spirit that your team have it must be so difficult trying to keep you know everyone you know working together so well and manage to you know keep it all going despite all these constant changes it's hard for people in hospitality it's really really tough it's really tough and i feel we're very lucky because we have such a strong brand and and also with lockdown we were so busy you know we were working with chefs and schools cooking food for hampers for kids who who really needed to be fed and we were doing lots of work with angela hartner and, and the cook 19 guys so we we maintained a real positivity and also within all of our teams i think as you as you said we've We've got a real strong feeling of family in Oaxaca. We, we always have done. You know, we've gone to Mexico together and I'm cooking downstairs with a guy called Leo who's been working with me for 10 years now. We are, we're pretty strong. I mean, the one thing I was thinking today is we were making a kind of Tejuano sauce from the Isthmus region of Mexico downstairs in the kitchen was, my golly, we got to dance so much. We're going to have one humdinger of a party when we come out of this because Oaxaca has always been quite famous for its, its staff parties. And we are all really missing it right now because everyone's working really hard and they're keeping this really positive focus. And I just feel like it's going to be such a massive... Hopefully, it will be like a national, international celebration you know, of, of fancy and joy and dancing and spirits once you know we come out of all this. I think there's yeah, going to be a, it says a, we need a post... It post-war spirit isn't there and at some point when whenever there is a set statistical criteria that's met it will be really interesting to see how the nation celebrates but you're right about the hygiene thing and I think that's a really worthwhile point to make so we spoke to Michelle Rue Jr in the last series and he was saying our restaurants are super clean and hygienic anyway because that's what we do. We're in the business of being so safe. And I think the message must, you know, is there an education piece? The message must have to get out to diners that you're not taking any added risk either by eating in or certainly not through takeaway. This is as safe as it gets. This is, you know, the ultimate in professional food hygiene. And do you think people realise that? Well, the latest stats... Well, I think the latest stats, which are published by Public Health England, is that 2% of transmissions happen in restaurants. I think fundamentally, the safest place you can eat is in a restaurant. You know, we've invested huge amounts of money in screens, in masks, in, in sanitation. And I think we are so focused on keeping people safe and actually creating that atmosphere of safety but also of hospitality which is what we're so good at and as Michelle Rue has attested we've always had to be safe spaces you know we are so carefully regulated by EHO that we've always been safe and we've invested so much extra money in making us even safer you know all our chefs wear masks back of house our front of house staff wearing masks all the time and I think you know we've, what we've always said to the government is keep us open less is carrying on being safe spaces for people to be able to socialise and see each other and keep the economy going, because not keeping the economy going is having such a horrendous effect on our debt and, and the mountains of tax that our young are going to be having to be paying for who knows how long. And I think the saddest thing is we couldn't get that message out, that we are safe places, transmissions were never really happening in restaurants, and even things like the curfew, which was exacerbated problems of sending everyone out into the streets at the same time, Whereas when you just let people, treat people like grown-ups, let them operate safely. And if people are behaving well and are 
operating in, on safety, then shut them down, which is what happens any when a restaurant does fail the kind of public health audit, they get shut down. So we're all for shutting down people who are not behaving well. But for all those other hundreds and hundreds and thousands of businesses who depend, you know, so many people depend on these jobs, let them operate safely. And yet people still see each other. I feel, I feel so strongly about that. And, and you know, supporting people's lives, their, their livelihoods, their salaries, and not spending these billions of pounds on, on the furlough scheme. But I guess it's a tricky, it's a tricky dice. But even through all the lockdowns up north, all the data suggested that none of the transmissions or very few, two percent, were happening in hospitality, which makes it so maddening that we've had to carry the brunt of this almost not really a witch hunt, but this kind of blame game that for some reason we were always the first places to be shut down. Yeah, I too saw those stats. And actually, it makes it very clear that, you know, so many restaurants have been open since July and have had tens of thousands of people throughout the door without any incident whatsoever. And, you know, that's an amazing, amazing achievement, really. And, you know, it, it should be no surprise to anyone. You mentioned Oaxaca has been involved in chefs in schools. Maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about the way that your business has been involved in supporting their work. Well, I am a trustee of Chefs and Schools. We, we, you know, three years ago, we all sat around a table and and talked about the problem of improving school food. And and Chefs and Schools was born, which Henry Dimbleby and Nicole Pisani brilliantly then, you know, set up and and ran. And I think it is the most brilliant charity in, in terms of, you know, if you put one trained chef in a school kitchen, they can completely transform the school food at less of a food cost, than these big, big catering companies are often feeding kids not very good quality food, not nutritional food, at a much higher food cost. So we've kind of flipped that model on its head and we've been so successful. And I think the work that Chefs and School did over lockdown, they kind of pivoted their business model, which was to improve school food from the bottom up and also teach children about where food comes from. And, you know, you're looking at many, many positive results of transforming school food. You're looking at not just improving child health and obesity, but also it's much more environmentally friendly to eat more vegetables and, and to eat more healthily. Like that is, There's an absolute proven link between a diet of ultra-processed food and a diet of food that has got a much higher carbon output. So it, it kind of ticks every box. So it's been hugely successful. We've been in many more schools than we thought to date. And then we had this incredible surge over lockdown of we basically produced 330,000 meals for people who were kind of, you know, not being fed properly. And that made me feel incredibly proud. And it also gave the charity wonderful visibility for the work they're doing, which I think is really important. I think it's really important that people on all incomes eat well. We have a terrible obesity rate in this country. Our food system is broken and it's a really brilliant charity kind of addressing all those points. Amazing. The the Cook 19 scheme, Thomasina, I was proud to donate some of our hummus to that and Angela's done an amazing job and it's great that you were also involved. Do you see that ramping up again to support the key workers when hospitals are predicted to get busier and this is all going on is it is it going to become a bigger thing again or is it just always going to be operating as it is now so the cut 19 round down when the hospitals started emptying out again and as far as i know there are many hospitals throughout the country that are still not that full you know there are lots of different scientists doing lots of different predictions about how full hospitals are going to get uh, and it's quite hard working out where the truth is there are definitely some really full ones up north 
which is slightly outside, you know, ask. So we were doing very much local IC units to us, just in terms of, you know, feasibility of, of getting the food fresh to these places. But of course, I think what was so wonderful, again, about the hospitality industry, which I'm so proud and obviously biased, but in the whole pandemic, every single chef and food business I knew about did something to help feed people in need, whether it was old people, whether it was children in need, whether it was ICU units, that feeling of solidarity and that deep-rooted, fundamental urge we have to feed people really shone through. And Code Hospitality did this incredible kind of hero thing of shining a light on who had got. And it was kind of, you know, brought tears to your eyes reading about all the different things that we did. So I felt, you know, we were part of the... You know, the, the hospitality business really did, you know, merge. You know, we're obviously not the heroes of the NHS, but I felt we definitely didn't do it. We did we did ourselves proud. That's what I'm trying to say. We did ourselves proud. And I hopefully we will again, should we be in need as well. Yeah, I think it just highlights what a force hospitality is for good and that how much it matters actually to society as a whole. And we really need to be valuing and protecting it. You know what? I really think that's true. I think we are force for good. And I feel immensely proud of what we've done and what we continue to want to do. And, and if I think about all of my peers, when someone says, can you come and cook for this charity thing? All I have to do is pick up a phone. And I know that I've got chefs on speed dial who will give up an evening to raise thousands of pounds for charity just out of the goodness of their hearts. And I think it would be wonderful if the government did start listening more to our industry and, and maybe sharing it with a bit more respect. Because I think we are a force for good and I think we are a place where human beings can break bread together and talk. And that is the essence of humanity, you know, eating and conversing and being together. That is what, what is humanity without that? And I think we sometimes lose touch for that in this country. That's one of the reasons I love Mexico, because there's a saying in Mexico, you would never, ever strike an important business deal not at a table full of food. Food is seen as such a cohesive force, the, en- the oil of every engine, that it's unheard of to, to make any important decision without the kind of the company of good food. And I think this country needs to value its farmers, its producers, and its entire food systems actually a bit more. And you know, it's another thing I campaign about recently. The agricultural bill has been, you know, in the news mm. uh, with all these trade deals that the government are trying to sign. And I think that's another really important thing for all of us to realise is that we have to protect our farmers and we have to maintain our high food standards. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we spoke to Minette Batters in episode, in series one of the podcast back in, I think it was May, and it's so important to protect that landscape. And I mean, one thing that really struck me listening to what you were saying about Mexican food, and I think one thing that I think we can learn so much from from Mexico is the sort of is how democratic food is you know the access to good food you know and how you can buy and eat good food you know it's just such a a level playing field in Mexico I think by comparison so it's it's really interesting first of all there are two two things on that I I completely agree with you and and even Oaxaca was born out of that democracy in Mexico everyone enjoys good food and and we really wanted Oaxaca to make sure everyone could enjoy it that was like one of our fundamental founding principles. I think school food might start to improve when Ofsted starts actually considering the food that we feed our children in schools as vaguely important in the whole ethos of a school, because for me, it's fundamental. And 
in this country, we eat more ultra-processed food than in any other country in Europe. It is massive. It's in 52% of our shopping baskets across the nation. That is a massive amount of ultra-processed food, which is shown to link to diabetes, to cancer, to all sorts of really bad problems. This is food that's essentially killing us. It contributes to 90,000 deaths every year. That's way more than COVID's produced. And this is the food. So if you come from a high income, you probably eat as much as you do if you're from a low income. But of course, people from high incomes supplement the kind of crappy food that we enjoy on a Friday night or when we're feeling tired or, you know, because let's all face it, I love a kettle chip, I love some ice cream, I love, I love all that stuff, right? But we also eat lots of fresh fruit and veg, which is really expensive. Proportionally, it's got more and more expensive. And that's what people on low incomes aren't getting enough of. And so I feel really passionate that, that food should be democratic and we've got to start getting that good quality food, the fresh stuff to people on low incomes, because otherwise we're basically stunting our nation. And, you know, our children are our future. You can't have a productive country that's firing all cylinders and creating and being diverse if you're not feeding your children properly. And absolutely you are. You are what you eat. And children, you can almost see it moment by moment, second by second, certainly in my house, if they haven't eaten or if they if they've eaten the wrong things. You know, it does make such a massive difference. It's just so empirically clear. It's a fundamental basic, I think. And I think what unites the three of us in this call and all of our guests is a drive to feed people and to feed them well and a love of food. And I think, you know, the fact that you can continue doing that at the moment, even in lockdown with your takeaway service, is brilliant. You're sitting in one of your lovely restaurants, and I'm sure you're in the middle of whipping up all sorts of delicious things. I know you're incredibly busy. Thank you very much for your time. And I personally cannot wait to get back to London and go to the South Bank and enjoy my Oaxaca with my friends and just get back to some sort of normality. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, yes. Yes. God, we're, we're so much looking forward Absolutely. to all of us, aren't we? And, and it just shows that humanity, you know, we essentially all want to be doing that, breaking bread, enjoying ourselves and, and spending time with each other, which is a wonderful hurrah for who we all are. I agree more. Hear, hear. <laughs> Thank you so much. Fantastic. So it was really interesting to hear from Tommy on how they're coping as a business and all the things they're doing to stay afloat and carry on and what they're looking forward to after this big situation passes and the big party they're planning, hopefully. That will come sooner rather than later. So on to our second guest, Charlotte, tell us more. Claudia McKenna is a chef, cookery book author and TV presenter. Originally from Ireland, Clodagh trained at Ballymaloo Cookery School and has cooked and worked in France, Italy and New York. She has developed and established Irish farmers markets, worked with slow food and in hospitality, running her own restaurant chain in Ireland. Clodagh is the author of seven recipe books and her latest book, Clodagh's Weeknight Kitchen, has just been published a few days ago. Her recipes are easy, exciting and designed to expand one's repertoire. They're often a wonderful mix of Irish and international dishes, deeply inspired by her home, her time in Italy and travels further afield. But all her recipes are practical and achievable with subtle twists to make them extra special. She runs a big website, clodamakeda.com, with a homeware shop. It has recipes and lots of well-being and lifestyle advice, tips and tricks. 
Cloda makes regular appearances, cooking on the TV in the UK, US and Canada. And she entertained the nation during lockdown with her cheering cookery videos on Instagram, cooking, singing and dancing every single day during lockdown. Cloda McKenna, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Oh, thank you, Charlotte. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. Oh, well, thanks for joining us, Cloda. I mean, First of all, I just want to say thank you for all the kind of cheer that you've brought into our lives during lockdown because, you know, I watched myself from the start and your recipes brought so much pleasure to so many people. And, you know, I'd look forward to seeing you online every single day. I mean, I must admit as well, I did sometimes think, how on earth does Clodagh keep on smiling? Because there were days when I didn't feel like that. But you just brought so much joy and pleasure. And it was amazing that you kept going for so long. Was it over 100 days? It was over 100 days. You know, I started out initially and I just thought, you know, I'll do a couple. And, you know, because the pandemic started or lockdown started and my all my work got postponed and all of a sudden I wasn't traveling all my, you know, I just, the next week I was supposed to be in New York. And then the week after I was supposed to be in Ireland for four days doing a tour down the West Coast for the Telegraph and everything just got postponed. And I thought, oh God, what am I going to do with myself here in the middle of the country? You know, and we're quite isolated anyhow. So I have a little studio, it was actually an outhouse that I decided put all my energy into and turn into a studio and that's where I'd walk out the door walk over to this little shed and basically this would be my like my little place that I'd go to kind of every day and so I started off on the first morning as I said just doing one or two and then the feedback was so great and I was getting so much enjoyment from it that I decided okay well why don't I start doing this why don't I start doing this daily and then it just got into becoming a thing. And then I was thinking maybe Monday to Friday. And then the first Saturday came and we're getting all these DMs, like, what are we cooking today? And I said, oh God, I've got to do it every day. And then it just became, you know, this thing. And I was getting kind of so much positive feedback. I don't know about you, Charlotte, but it felt like that social media just all of a sudden turned from being a place where there can be, you know, a lot of kind of, you know, negativity sometimes, it turned into a really positive place. And everybody globally was going through the exact same thing. So we're all feeling the exact same thing all the time. So it felt like this wonderful kind of unity together. And and I just got had gotten so much feedback. And I felt like I was kind of you know, we all wanted to do something, you know, to help people during that period. And I felt like I was doing just, you know, a little part in in helping people kind of figure out what they were going to cook that night for dinner or how to bake a bread or how to bake, you know, a treat like a flapjack or what they could do with their kids that day. And I just loved it. And then the followers just grew and grew quite fast. And I mean, we were getting 200 to 300 DMs a night. And I say we, because Harry was helping me with it. So when I got too tired at night, I was, he was tasking me, he was telling me, and he was typing the back, the responses, you know, as I was saying it, because I was kind of tired (laughs) from the day of trying to keep up with it. And I felt the real responsibility to do it. I felt, God, people take the time to write me a message, I need to write back as much as I can. And obviously there were lots that I didn't get to, but it, you know, the ones that were 
like there was a lot of NHS nurses, there were a lot of carers that were really coming into just having a checkout zone. Like there was one hospital in Manchester and the nurses would take their break, you know, their, um, a group of nurses were telling me that they were taking their break to watch, you know, just have a little escapism. And um, and so it was really lovely. And I've started it now again. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I think, I mean, I've really felt that too, that the online space has become more of a community in my view. And I think people are using it to really connect with others in a way that they haven't before and keep in touch. And, you know, it has its pros and cons, but I think the real benefits of being online have been shown throughout the last few months. And it's easy to forget as well that when you started that, so many people were actually at the point of having to make their own meals for the first time every day because there was no choice. I mean, things have changed a little bit since then, but that was really disorientating for a lot of people, I think, to suddenly face themselves with no choice but to cook. And I think that's what you did so well because your recipes managed to really create amazing, amazing, delicious food, but they are, they are doable. Anyone can do it. Yeah, anybody could do it. And that's that's the the kind of most important thing for me about the recipes that I develop and cook and put out there, that people feel like I can do it. And mm. and it's the same with, you know, I guess kind of growing the vegetables or keeping bees or or hens or you know, and I started kind of introducing that then into my, you know, that my daily IGTVs kind of about a few weeks on. And I was so nervous about doing it. <laughs> I had a whole like wobbly one day and I was like, no, I, don't, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, a vegetable growing expert. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe people can help me with what I'm doing. And I'm just going to just kind of open it up. And because what was happening is I was doing all my recipe videos every morning and then writing up the recipes after that, getting organized for the next day. And then I'd every day at three o'clock Harry and I would meet have a coffee and and Harry's my fiance and we'd go out into the garden and and start weeding and planting and pruning and and all that work and we spent like four hours a day on it so I felt like I was kind of hiding a part of my life yeah. <laughs> and so I decided then to kind of just introduce start doing the videos out there and show people what I was growing and and then we it was fantastic. This amazing community really started gathering momentum as in like people were asking questions and then other people were answering them back that had great knowledge and people were giving me tips, you know, about what to do. And I learned so much during that period because, of you know, when you're first time and it was me, I mean, it was our second year having the garden ready for planting but it was the first summer where we had the full summer of planting if you get me yeah and it was amazing it was just like a real learning curve you know like mm. some things went really well and some things were absolute disaster <laughs> <laughs> how come my melons just never grew and I thought other people were like look at our melons this year and I'm like oh they're still like this small the seedlings and they've been for like three months <laughs> just all that learning curve and then yeah. composting like we got really organized on our, all our composting system you know from we've got four different types of composting at the moment you know we've got leaf composting we have our, our green composting we've got flower composting um we've got wormery where we use all our coffee grinds and everything in 
And so now that is full circle and it's, we haven't had to buy compost. We've got 60 acres. Mm. So you usually have to have buying in quite a bit of compost, but we're not buying any compost, thank God. And we started our cutting garden during, during the pandemic as well. Oh, lovely. But lovely. again, it was like touching back on this, on social, social media space. It was, there was so much feedback on people telling me, oh, you should get this type of peony or this type of the chocolate Cosmo, which I hadn't heard of. And, oh, my God, I don't know if you've ever seen one, Charlie. Beautiful. Here. Oh, my God. Oh. It's kind of half dead. But I'll show it to you anyhow. Oh, it's just stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Velvet, you know. Oh, it's all falling apart now. It's the last of them. Oh, <laughs> but it's the journey, all of it, isn't it? And you never stop learning. And to share that with everyone is amazing. And so... You know, I imagine sort of, you know, it sounds from what you said that, that, you know, the videos practically became your new full-time job in terms of getting all of that sorted and managing, um, yeah. to, you know, to communicate with everyone who is engaging with it and the garden. But you also wrote a cookery book. <laughs> a cookery book. I know. It was wonderful having that time during that period where every other week I'm usually travelling away for a week. Um, but to be able to have that time and to have that, like, almost like on the button live feedback from people about like what they like about a dish if that one was popular if that one wasn't like I could literally see by the views and the comments mm. what people loved the best and so I kind of just slightly kind of like filtered recipes and then you know even myself like cooking in the evening when you've had a really busy day and I'm like a chef but still I was feeling it like at like seven o'clock going like oh my god Mm. what are we going to cook for dinner again tonight yeah. you know, it was like you know there was like three events the day breakfast and lunch and then dinner there was no break yeah. <laughs> you know we all yeah. usually have some kind of break you know we have like a you know go out for to a cafe for lunch or you know maybe once a week we go to an Italian or something like that but there was no break from it and and for me kind of putting trying to pull together and kind of get an exciting or at least an interesting kind of something interesting to eat every night that wasn't taking too much time, wasn't using too many cooking vessels and, you know, that I could, you know, easily do with store covered ingredients. And that's how the whole book came upon. And it was my publisher that said to me, you need to do a book on this. And they'd been looking at the comments and people asking, where can they get all the recipes together? And so that's how it happened. It was just like when those kind of natural organic processes of kind of filtering back all to the recipes developing more and I mean my favorite book that I've ever written in that way I mean I mm. that was my book before that was so special mm, it's but, lovely yeah, I love that book mm. um, and this one then is just such a practical book it's not yeah. like I don't know I was so excited when William Sitwell you know did a quote for the Telegraph saying that yes. it's the most cookable cookbook of 2020. I was like, I nearly cried. I, mm. I <laughs> yeah, but it is. And I, I genuinely think that there is a place for that book in anyone's kitchen. And I'm not just saying that, but, you know, I struggle too, you know, especially yeah. sometimes when you've been thinking about food all day as well, you just say, oh, I just need to make a decision, you know. <laughs> and having those ideas, uh, you know, it's it's useful for everyone. So that's published by, it's Clodagh's Weeknight Kitchen, and it's published by Kyle. So it's available internationally, UK, Ireland, and, and US. 
So it comes out in the US and Canada in February. In February. Oh, not not long to wait then. <laughs> Over there. <laughs> and you've already been shortlisted for an Ampost Irish Book Award so far. That's I amazing. Crossed, yeah, for Cookbook of the Year. So yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, there's some of my favourites that are up there, like Rory O'Connell. I know. And, and I love him, but he's a really good friend of mine. So, yeah. Like, it's so funny to be, I mean, we're kind of like cheering each other on. So I'm happy whether he wins or I win. For me, it'll be it'll be a win if either one of us gets it. I know, I saw that um, shortlist and I thought, gosh, I don't envy the judges. <laughs> Such amazing, amazing books to choose from. So we're recording this as we're just about to go back into our second lockdown in England and you're based in England now how are you preparing for that are you uh, you're going to carry on your videos perhaps yeah do, I, I'm going to do the, the daily IGTVs again we started last week and so yeah I'm going to start doing those every day and then on the last lockdown I pivoted my my business so that I didn't have to be reliant on other collaborations or work to keep me going and to pay my bills. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so I started an online shop. Yeah. And it happened again organically. Like I think a lot of things happened for people during the pandemic organically, where I had this microplane zester and I was using it all the time. And it is my number one kitchen tool. And I mm. have no I have no collaboration with my mm. And people were asking me, you know, where could they get it? And I was looking at people and people were like in the country in County Kerry in Ireland and Clare. And I was thinking, God, so I was ordering them in, paying for them at full price and then posting them out to people so that they could have them. And I was like, well, this is going to be, this is ridiculous. So I contacted Microplane and I set up a wholesale account. So they like to actually buy in bulk. And so then I announced it going, going I bought them up on a shop on my website you can buy them and that weekend we sold over 500 microplanes oh wow um, yeah. the coral ones the coral ones they're beautiful I've not seen that color before all my black <laughs> um, and the, my beep so every time I got like a sale my phone would go beep and I only had 50 in stock oh. and the phone the whole weekend was going beep 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 and I was getting so stressed out I was like <laughs> Oh my God. And then I realized on Monday, okay, I need to do this properly. And so I started asking people, you know, people who were buying things, I'd email them back and saying like, what would you like to see up here? And blah, blah, blah. And now we've got like a fully fledged shop. Like it's my whole studio is now the mm. shop. Like it's everything for the tabletop. You know, my favorite mm. things. Got all our Christmas stock came in a few weeks ago. Mm. You know, favorite slicers favorite peelers mm. um, things that I've been using for years or that like you know like bud vases like that that you know it's that can be hard beautiful. to get like, perfect ones and so so lovely um we've just and I have a business partner Al and she's brilliant and so she we both kind of work on finding all the the products which is so much fun oh um, wow. lovely beautiful candles and all that kind of stuff so that's fun. So I'll gorgeous, gorgeous question in a very Irish long-winded way. <laughs> I tend to do that all the time. And I know it's such an Irish trait, isn't it? I'm used to it. I've spent <laughs> lots of time in <laughs> silence. <laughs> uh, yeah. So to end, answer the question, basically on the lockdown too, things will be just the exact same for me. Wonderful. Like it, it's just actually nothing different really for me because I'm working from here since April. Now, wow. I've been locked down since April. 
Yeah, I know. And it's an interesting thing. I think you're in a sort of a rural situation quite like myself. And it, it is quite interesting because, you know, it's, <laughs> there's, you know, there isn't really anywhere to go or people to see. You know, it really is quite a situation. You know, you are quite isolated. And I hope you don't mind if I ask the last question. I've been really interested in everything you've been doing in your new home. I really sense that you've got this real focus on making it more sustainable. And that's something I'm really interested in as well. And I wonder if you'd be able to maybe share some of your recommendations for people who are just looking to make their home, their kitchen, just that bit more sustainable. Is there anything that you've discovered that has been a particular revelation? Definitely. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I wanted to hear this, you know, a year ago. Yeah. You know, when we all just want to, yeah, I mean, things like, you know, holding on to all your coffee grounds. Mm. Whenever you have your coffee set up, just have a little container beside it. So whether you're doing a plunge coffee or you've got an espresso machine, just pop all your coffee grounds into it. And then do a list of all of the plants that you've got growing and vegetables and then just do a google search on all of them and the ones that like acid soil are the ones that will really benefit and love a cup of coffee in the morning too (laughs) so you just put a tick beside them and then once a week or once every two weeks pretend you know depends how much coffee you drink just go out and just sprinkle them around the plant and rub it into the soil and it completely it'll stimulate them the other thing that it does is worms love coffee so really? it's worms and we all oh, we need loads of worms to aerate our soil because that will really mm. keep your plant healthy and also snails hate it so it detracts from snails so what I've done is I've got my my Brussels sprouts you know growing for Christmas mm. outside and I woke up one morning and half of them you could see all the snails all the little bites all the holes through mm. them. so I've created a little fencing of coffee around it and it's really helped so that's one thing you could do the second thing is just with the amount of cling film that we use so like like our number one seller at the moment on the shop or our bread our linen bread bags actually mm. I'm going to send you one Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, I'll post one to you. And they are absolutely brilliant. I'm using them to, you know, for my bread. And in there, then you can fit in your bread. You can pop in, like I made scones at the weekend. So the scones are in them. Mm. I'll also use it for like, you know, vegetables. Mm. Or now started using it for my cheeses as well. So I'm not wrapping the cheese in, in cling film. Oh, nice. It's breathable, I imagine, as well for the cheese. It's breathable and everything. Uh, and then you can just take them out and throw them into the, you know, into the wash and, and wash them. So they're like, I mean, if we all stopped, reduced our use of cling film by half, that would be made such a major difference. The other thing are lemons. You know, every time you use a lemon, you know, pop it into the dishwasher and it will decrease and deglaze and, and clean your whole dishwasher and then it's all broken down so it'll yeah. compost really easily then well I have to thank you for introducing me to that because I have been doing that since oh, you recommended you? it oh, yeah. and it's unreal <laughs> I really I've been so impressed because I have to say I just I thought really is it going to make a difference it is amazing I know it becomes, isn't it brilliant it becomes addictive Oh my gosh, every single lemon. And then the drawer ends up like full with them. I just keep them going uh, for a couple of years. I know uses. because then when you don't, ha- when you put on a cycle that doesn't have a lemon in it, it's so disappointing the result. I know. I know. You're like, oh, just there's not that fresh smell and everything doesn't look, you know, your glasses 
they're a little bit foggy if they don't have the lemon in it. So that's, I know. That's, yeah. Really works. <laughs> it totally works. The other thing that I do is I'm always using tea leaves as opposed to tea bags. A lot of the tea bags aren't recyclable. Some of them are, but some of them, you know, aren't compostable. And then getting your, I guess, a really simple thing is just getting your enough bins so that you can separate easily. Like I have three bins looking at my kitchen over there. I've got three bins, you know, and one is just for paper. And just to look at, because it can be quite, I don't know about you, but it can be quite confusing with the packaging. If it doesn't say that it's not recyclable on the packaging, it's not. So that shouldn't go into the into the green bins, you know, mm. like the recycling bin. It, it will like people shout about it when it's recyclable. Most plastic isn't, you know. So that has to go into another thing. And and just starting a composting system, I found the wormeries really brilliant. But you definitely need an outdoor space for it, and they definitely need care. Like I killed two batches of worms. Um, oh, just because all worms. <laughs> <laughs> rainfall I shouldn't laugh but the rainfall if you don't open up the spout and, and let the water out when it rains the the worms will drown oh. twice so it, it does need definitely need a care but there are so mm. many great kind of composting systems mm. and the other things of course are like just turning off I'm obsessed with turning and unplugging everything from the electric sockets every night and fire lighters like fire lighters are you know, I didn't realize it, that there, there are so many chemicals and toxins within a regular fire lighter, like, you know, like the zip fire lighters. And so to try different fire lighters. So I've got, oh, there's no need for me to go and get it, but I, <laughs> in my, uh, my whole closet, I have a little bag. And every t- time a candle gets low, you know, down to about here, and oh. I pop it into the bag and I use that along with pine cones and paper as fire lighters and it'll get your fire going you love that that is an amazing trick so collect your pine cones all your thingies and then paper you know your you know paper crumbled up your newspaper pop in these little you know bits of candle in there you just need one or two yeah and it'll flame up you'll be like and even if your fire is going low or you've got wood on it and it's not taking spark throw in a little wax thing and the whole thing goes That's amazing because, you know, in the home, I'm all about introducing fewer chemicals. And actually, if you're sat there with a fire going and you've put fire lighters on, you don't know what you're breathing in as well. Absolutely. Or, you know, you probably know this already, but bicarbonate of soda, for people who don't, bicarbonate of soda, for getting mm. your, your shirts white, you know, in your in your wash. So instead of putting a whitener in or a vanish or, you know, which are full of chemicals and rubbing that into your cloth, that, that's rubbed up against your skin, mm. is putting bicarbonate of soda in there and it'll whiten all of your whites. That's one of the oh, yeah, wow, most exciting things of my my household duties that I do. Amazing. Not putting in the bicarbonate. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, Cloda. Thank you so much for sharing those tips. I'm going to be saving my coffee grounds and making my whites extra white with bicarb now. So thank yeah. you for those. <laughs> well, um, Cloda, thank you so much for speaking to us thank this morning. You. We wish you every success, continued success with your new book. We will be following your videos and, you know, you will be cheering up the nation, everyone, as we go into lockdown again. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, and thank you. And may the best of luck with the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. It's, and I love the name. And <laughs> Thank you. So congratulations. That's so kind. Thank you, Cloda.
Well, that was really interesting. Now, Jules, what's the latest industry news in the world of food shopping and supply? Marks and Spencers is rolling out a scheme for Sparks cardholders to reserve shopping slots. The scheme is available in all 566 standalone food halls and branches containing a food hall. The book and shop service allows Sparks loyalty cardholders to reserve a 30-minute arrival time on the MS website to do their shopping. The retailer is allowing up to two customers per household to book a slot. Wholesalers are warning that the second lockdown could be catastrophic. The sector warns that care home residents could go hungry if wholesalers are forced to close their doors unless the government acts quickly to provide financial support to the sector. And finally, shopping centre landlords are urging the government to provide emergency support for the high street during the second lockdown. The industry body has called for business rates relief to be extended beyond April 21 and for financial support for retailers that can't pay rent. So that's the latest news from me. It feels a bit doom and gloom, but I guess that's the situation when we are in a national lockdown. So let's have a nicer chat about some cooking tips with Charlotte. What have you got for us this week, Charlotte? Well, I was really inspired by our conversation with Clodagh. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, she's also been thinking about how to make more sustainable choices in the kitchen in terms of food buying and shopping. And I think uh, that's something that's really been on my mind recently. And I wanted to share some of the things that I've been doing that I think will make a small difference. First of all, I always like to think about what I buy and where it's from. And I like to think about the packaging that it's in as well. So I try and buy as many local and seasonal ingredients as I can. But I also buy, you know, packaged ingredients too. You know, the fact that I buy ingredients in a package, I make sure that when I do that, I look for recyclable packaging, which is found in many more products than you might think now. So I'm trying to reduce the amount of stuff that goes into landfill. I'm also thinking as well about how I store my food and, you know, Clodagh mentioned cling film, for example. It is so easy to rely on cling film, particularly if you've had a sort of professional chef training. I mean, honestly, so many kitchens do use uh, a lot of cling film. Some people will find it's, you know, it's, um, it really is the dumb thing. Clodagh mentioned her lovely linen bags and I've been using beeswax wraps and resealable containers which are working really well for me but again just reducing the amount of single-use waste that goes in the bin is a good thing I'm also thinking about cleaning products making sure things are a bit more ecological and the way I do things I know Clodagh mentioned bicarb that's a really good thing white vinegar and I've been using natural soaps instead of antibacterial products and anything with chemicals in and I feel as though that that's making a real difference as well so just some small tips to think about but making these changes in the kitchen and the home can make such a difference absolutely thank you yes i've been using the beeswax wraps lately and they're great although they did accidentally go through the dishwasher and that wasn't so oh good. yes we learned from that one we won't do that again oh, oh dear <laughs> easily done great tips there thank you charlotte And thanks for another really enjoyable recording of the Pandemic Pantry podcast. And huge thanks, of course, to all of our guests and our lovely listeners. And we'll talk to you all again soon. So we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, 
drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And we'll see you next week.